Hello, welcome, and a happy new year. On behalf of How Hebelam Ufa, to our first discussion in our Burning Future series in 2021 with the title Becoming Land. Well, every approach to ecology is confronted with the question of how to describe, name, or understand the subject at stake, namely the environment the living worlds, natural elements or resources, life forms or processes, more than human ecosystems, and their entanglements with our modes of social organization. In anthropocentric approach of Western modernity, natural environments are mostly seen through scientific measurement, experimentation, imagining technology and computation, or through artistic representation. These approaches are based on a subject-object divide, which renders natural milieus as a site for extraction and consumption, mostly. Thus, the way we approach and understand our living environments have severe cosmopolitical consequences that amount to today's environmental crisis. The question of how to look at, how to perceive and visualize natural landscapes lies at the center of the new artistic research project Matrilinea B of today's guest, artist and filmmaker Angela Melitopoulos. In her cinematic research, Melitopoulos aims at learning, and I quote, to understand the expressive power of the Earth's surface as a speaking landscape or as an agency of a statement. In order to obtain this perspective, she develops an experimental audiovisual practice interweaving the deep time of geology, methods of archaeology and anthropology with the transversal power of aesthetic articulation. Matrilinea B examines images of Earth's surfaces, landscape, photographs and cartographic painting as operative knowledge in order to approach new ways of thinking of ecologies. For her research that takes place in Lower Austria, the Northern Territories in Australia, the Southeast Asian Highlands and Upper Bavaria, Meliptopoulos aims to learn from indigenous societies and their modes of relating to the land. Angela has been creating experimental video essays, installations, documentaries and sound pieces since 1985. Her work focuses on memopolitics, time, geography, and collective memory. She holds a PhD from Goldsmiths University in London and taught as a professor at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Copenhagen until last year, I think. And on the occasion of the discussion series Burning Futures, she suggested to come in conversation with a French anthropologist and writer, Barbara Kloszewski, that she had interviewed in the course of her video installation assemblage created with Maurizio Lazzarato about Felix Gattari's philosophical, political and therapeutic practices that also form a shared point of interest between the two. Barbara Glosiewski is an anthropologist and writer based in Paris. She has been working with indigenous peoples since 1979 in places such as Central Australia, Palm Island, Brazil or French Polynesia. 
She's written on, and these are book titles, Durza Dreamers from 1989, Totemic Becomings from 2015, and Indigenizing Anthropology with Gatterie and Deleuze in 2020. These two philosophers form a major inspiration for her work from the onset. Studying with Deleuze, she came to anthropology through cinema, and her fieldwork included, like Angela, filmic practices as a point of departure. Her pioneer multimedia work, Dream Trackers, a CD-ROM from 98, received many awards. Barbara is a professor and director of research at the National Scientific Research Center in France, member of the Laboratory of Social Anthropology at the Collège de France, and teaching at the School of Advanced Studies in Social Sciences in Paris. Through 40 years of involvement with indigenous Australians, Barbara also fosters and supports political alliances and ecosophical assemblages connecting indigenous struggles for environmental justice, especially against fossil fuels in Central Australia and the Kimberley, and French activism for alternative ways to inhabit our living environments in a responsible way. So today's discussion takes the questions of Angela Melitopoulos' Matrilinear B research project about resistant cultures of perception of land as a point of departure and will develop along the line of her shared interest with Kloshevsky in Gatterian ecosophic thinking, cartography, concepts of resistance, affective images, possible models or modes of social organization for more than human alliances, and world-making. Um, together we ponder on the questions of the importance of indigenous cosmologies for environmental and climate justice movements around the globe, as well as about the possible alliances and conflicts between these movements and different social um, orders. Yes, and we will start with a conversation between our two guests, and we will follow up with some questions from our side After this conversation, we are Margarita Zomu, the theory and discourse curator of the How, and Maximilian Haas, the co-curator of the Burning Futures discussion series. So, Angela and Barbara, the mic is yours. Hello. Hello, Margarita, Maximilian. Hello, Barbara. It is a great uh, pleasure to be here now all together and to talk about maybe many common points, but also questions, I think, that are quite central in order to understand some sort of an idea on ecology, an ecology that is more than what we can understand in terms of following data and measurements or analysis, but an ecology that goes perhaps also deep in history, not just the deep history that we are trying to discuss exactly within the culture of the indigenous knowledges in Australia, but also a deep history that is somehow our deep history that relates to prehistory, to archaeology, and that is kind of needing to open up and to learn towards something else. But let's say um, perhaps our common starting point is, of course, Felix Guattari's ideas and Deleuze and Guattari's notion, for example, on expression. What is expression? They are not separating expression from the making 
of the world, but they are actually looking at this expression as an act of actualization. And for me, I was always wondering when I say the expressive forces of the earth surface, while surface is again a kind of very interesting notion, but expressive forces of the earth surface as a speaking landscape, it means also that this landscape is kind of making our thinking. So it is something that is not a one-directional um, idea. A surface this is viewed uh, by many different ways today, and a lot of them are quite technological. Uh, for example, we know that the Earth surface is scanned by satellite images constantly. We don't know how these satellite images are then analyzed um, and what it would need to create an analysis that is not an algorithmic one, but uh, an analysis that has a situatedness within the land that it is looking on. So I'm kind of also questioning this uh, like idea of technology. And of course, I come back to this notion of a social technology that was discussed already in our statement in assemblages, where we have an assemblage in that human and non-human actors are all the time, you know, uh, interacting together. Now, this kind of idea has influenced me for a long time, especially when I saw the art of the Aboriginal Australian cultures within the idea of a cartography. And I started to investigate this idea of cartography, of course, before as a cinematic cartography. For me, uh, the cinema is not a kind of an art that only deals with a discourse of representation that is okay within a specific sphere of culture. But for me, it is an operation, a making, a possible making, an open making, a processual making in that uh, form of actualization of knowledge can take place. So um, I was uh, looking to landscape in this project because... I thought that the landscape has, of course, its own colonial history, but landscape has also a form of making us. And this making us is specifically important in terms of our memory, of our itineration. And it is important for me today to review how we look at landscape through the kinematic tools. What scaling, what framing, what visual representation are operated by the landscape and not just by the observer. Of course, in my artistic work, I always talk about how an image is speaking with another image, rather just that one image is speaking to the one who is viewing that one image. So there is already an extension, an extension that is leading us to something that is an assemblage and social organization of bodies. And... Um, so I kind of uh, want to make just two, three points before we start this uh, conversation, because the work is called Matrilinear B, and perhaps we have to understand this word. Matrilinearity or matrilineality has been developed as an anthropological category that describes society in which kinship is followed through the mother line a social organization in which everyone in the group is related to the mother's lineage. But uh, there are very few matrilineal societies existing today. And in the same way that we are kind of having 
not the chance really to understand the full organization of matrilineality, we have to think of something new. And this is why the project is called Matrilineal B. So let's start from two points in the research because I have four different plateaus, landscapes that are interlinked. I'm starting with the industrial agriculture in Lower Austria. If you look at the surface of Lower Austria, you see a very intensive pattern of fields. Everything is part of the agriculture, of the industrial agriculture in that part of Europe. It is the central European plain that links Central Europe with the Mediterranean through the Donau, the Donau culture, which are very important in terms of archaeology because it is there where you found the oldest sculptures in the Western world. So you have a kind of deep history that is very central for the archaeological science. But looking at them and thinking about them is making clear that we are not able to say much about this time, about this deep time, about the time when, let's say, perhaps a different relation to ecology was possible or was not yet destructive. The uh, archaeologists are always referring to anthropology. They are referring to the necessity to talk about anthropology because the factual scientific frame of archaeology does not allow for any interpretation of a social structure that is, for example, perhaps a more ecological one. So uh, we are looking at anthropology. And anthropology, and of course, for me, it has a long history because it is the history through that uh, the interest of Felix Quattari in indigenous cultures uh, was already taking place in the assemblage work. Then we are, you know, have another limit. And this is a limit where anthropology has its colonial history, the subject-object relation that was mentioned before. And this is why now I think I'm so interested to review or to discuss a few, let's say, points. For example, the point that Barbara is saying that there is a link between all the different life forms from mineral form to plant form to human form that exist in the culture of the Aboriginal indigenous people. And there is also a form of culture that actualizes these knowledges again and again. So um, maybe I should start with the question to Barbara. First of all, about this link between uh, all life forms and about a different understanding of time that I was thinking of. Thank you, Angela, Max, and Margarita. Well, with the things that you mentioned about wanting to review the scaling, the framing operated by the landscape, indeed, indigenous Australians and maybe many other indigenous people offer us answers which are very, very up-to-date to the questions that the so-called Anthropocene is uh, declaring as a challenge to the whole world. First, I would like to say that I like very much, among the, all the debates about the notion of Anthropocene and its inadequacy 
to claim that today man is at the heart of everything, Anthropos. And so it would be really a pity to call the new era Anthropos because of the mistakes of the past, which have led to such a terrible human impact of some humans, some civilizations, especially the last industrial one with all its outcomings. So I like very much the idea which is uh, proposed by an Australian man. His name is Glenn Albrecht, and he talks about the symbiocene. He lives in Australia. He's not uh, indigenous, but because uh, his father was coming from Sri Lanka, he has a darker skin, so he was often mistaken for an Aboriginal person in Australia, and so he experimented strong racism that all Indigenous people experiment in Australia. And what he proposed was in relation to, he was living in uh, Western Australia, in the region of Perth. There was a very big development project, which was uh, threatening the transformation of the landscape. And many people were feeling very disempowered in relation to that. Local people who are not only indigenous, there is a lot of indigenous people in southwest Australia, the Nyunga people, but also other people, including migrants. And he came with this idea of a concept called solastalgy, which came from solace, the pain, and in relation to also the idea of the word nostalgia, which refers to missing something in time, while Solastalgy for Glenn Albrecht is missing something in space. And it was a way to point with a new concept in 2013. And it became very much used uh, across the planet, especially by some artists and also psychologists, to express that idea that you feel that the ground under your feet is sort of slippering and you don't recognize your landscape around and uh, I believe that in a way, I mean, we had a discussion with Glenn Albrecht at the School of Social Sciences in Paris last April, that because he grew up in Australia and had exchanges with indigenous people there, this concept in a way is informed by the relation to land of the indigenous people. Now, there is a lot of resistance also in the white society and some migrants to say they don't understand why indigenous people are so affected by the land and all the different things. I mean, many non-indigenous people reject that because of this structural racism of the colonial history. Nevertheless, with the incredible catastrophes that we all saw in Australia, being on a red alert of drought, with uh, regular cyclones and, of course, the big fires that we saw last year, which for Indigenous people are the result of the fact that they were not allowed to take care, to look after the land in the way they were doing, even since the colonization, but then consisting in making small fires to clean the land and prevent the big fires which are specific to the type of vegetation that you find in Australia. So in a way, at least the big fires of last year allowed to bring up 
the knowledge of indigenous people in relation to caring for the land, especially these bushfires, which for more than 10 years were already encouraged by special ranger programs in the north and central and west Australia. But for a very long time, some misconception among uh, scientists, exactly what you were referring to about these unadequate, non-appropriate visions of the history of science, were saying that Aboriginal people were responsible for the drought in Australia because of making fires and that they desertified the country. Now, this is not true because the type of land, I will not enter any details about that. There has been many studies and I especially recommend the, the work of an Indigenous man of mixed ascendance. His name is Bruce Pascoe and he wrote in Australia, he was published in 2014, a book called Dark Emu, where he challenges a lot of uh, scientists on the basis of the data of other scientists who were rejected by the main science discourse, saying that in a way you find a lot of traces across Australia of a form of proto-agriculture so that Aboriginal people were farmers and so not just hunters and gatherers. And this is important now to respond directly to your question because this misconception of categories in anthropology which oppose hunting, gathering societies to agriculture and the beginning of agriculture 10,000 years ago in a certain form as it can be not observed, but uh, deciphered from traces in Europe, for instance, or in Africa. Well, in Australia, there is a very, very impressive archaeological work, which shows that by reading those traces, but also by rereading colonial descriptions, even if sometimes they are full of prejudices, but they indicate the kind of practices that Aboriginal people had with the land, which were very different in the south, the center, and the north. So in the south, you had already villages with stone houses, which were completely dismantled by the first colonial settlers. And so this became taboo to talk about the fact that there were this kind of societies in the south who had several miles long fish traps along the coast and so on. Now, Because of all these differences, what is extraordinary about indigenous people in Australia, which include at the moment of colonization, 250 years ago, more than 250 people of different languages living in a very different way, according to their landscape, is that there were networks of exchange all across the country. And the basis of these networks of exchange, what was exchanged? The things that they were producing, both material and immaterial, that is rituals, songs, designs, which are painted on the body or on sacred objects, this was traveling from group to group all across Australia. And the basis that allowed that incredible trade routes, lines of routes, like a huge open network of connections, the basis is in a shared cosmology. Even though each group had a different set of stories, 
what in Australia from uh, Aboriginal concept Chukurpa or Alchera is translated by dreaming in an understanding much wider than the Freudian understanding in the West. Well, even though each group had its own way of devising this cosmovision or cosmo-action, as Arturo Escobar would say for South America, calling for pluriversal vision of things, in a way, Indigenous people in Australia demonstrate this cohabitation through alliances all across the land of this pluriversal vision. That is that each group has its singularity, including in social organization, we'll come back to that later, which is the relation to the matriline, which is very different according to the different groups and the form of kinship and also all the rituals for death. It's as if the signature of each group was to singularize rituals, but the reference to ancestors who are not just human is shared by all the groups in Australia. So all this is present in the stories of the relevant group in the places where they live. You can see all across Australia different ways to inherit this association towards specific ancestors. But, and this is very important, Aboriginal people fought after they were displaced, forced to sedentarization into reserves. They fought, especially in the 60s, including Indigenous people of mixed descent who were living in cities. There was a very strong movement for land rights. And in 76, they won towards the government of those days, who was a Labour government under Whitlam, and a law allowed all the groups from the Central Australia, the Northern Territory estate, to claim their traditional ownership on specific land on the basis of the song lines that they were custodian of. And then there was a big debate because For instance, the Warby people who were the first to get their land back two years after, in 78, with long, long trials, with different lawyers and anthropologists who were doing all sorts of surveys to demonstrate the link that Warby people had with the land. There was a question of translation. Now, the Warby say for land that they are kirda, and this kirda means father. So they are kirda, and the word means they have a custodianship towards the father line, the fatherland, the line of the father, which is not just one father, the group of fathers, right? But they are kurdungulu, which is another form of custodianship towards the line, the song line, and the ancestors of their mother. And also towards the line and the ancestors of the person that they are authorized to marry because the different cosmological totemic groups, some are forbidden and some are the choice for marriage. So the network of those crisscrossing song lines is very complex. So it means that the different places in the land are connected between each other in kinship links, right? So imagine Berlin is your father and Paris is your mother, And then, as a child, according to the group you are in, so let's stay with the Walbury, 
the place of Berlin is you. And so you have uh, songs, paintings, and dances that you must perform to look after the country. So you are Kirda, custodian of those places which relate to Berlin being one of them on that line. But you are Kurdungulu, so you have another set of relationship to look after the country towards the same series of places around Paris, which is the place of your mother. Now, the war we said during the presentation of their claims on land that it's impossible just to recognize the Kirda, the father line, because nothing can be done to look after the country if there isn't some Kurdungulu people from the mother line and from the people you marry with, which is an alliance and not affiliation relationship. So this means that everybody is Kirda for the land of his or her father, right? This is for the Wobri, but also many other desert groups. But everybody is also Kurdungulu for his or her mother and spouses or potential spouses, which means that no ritual can take place without the presence of allies, right? Because people from your mother line, they are the allies of your father, right? They come from another song line. And this necessity to have a complementarity means that the knowledge, the biggest, deepest knowledge is not held by the Kirda, but is held by the Kurdungulu, which know more, the old people who are in the role of Kurdungulu, they have in custody the knowledge of the group who officially in English is the owner. And this is where the problem came, is that the Western law could only recognize the owners. That is the patrilineal line. And this was very, very disheartening for Wolby people because it was destroying something of their system, which means that land is not divided into tracts of land with people who are Kirda, but it's interconnected, an interconnection of lines. And on each place, there is a different conjunction of Kirda and Kurdungulu. So people through father, mother, and spouse's lines. And this, this is a formidable tool, which is very difficult to um, express through cartography because you have a place where several lines cross, right? Yeah. Let me, I think perhaps before we uh, ask also Margarita and Maximilian to come in here. Uh, this, is, uh, this is exactly a point. So how do you imagine our own landscape in that uh, less and less people have a kind of connection to the land? So less and less activity is there in order to you know, work some sort of heterogeneous life there. So we are in the process of desertification and we will have to make an artificial water distribution in a situation of drought, of climate change, because the organization of that piece of land or that kind of landscape is there's not enough people. The lands are empty. These uh, landscapes are empty. People went to the cities. Yes, that's true. But uh, there, there is a strong movement to change all that through practices of survival. First of all, 
like Anat Singh has shown, even in the new destroyed and polluted uh, urbanized landscape, there is new life forms. There are also people, architects, who have shown that in uh, so-called desert sections of cities, there is biodiversity which explodes. Now, more importantly, there are movements like the ZAD in France, the Zone to Defend of Notre-Dame-des-Landes, who invested a land that was threatened by a big, uh, unuseful project, as it's called in French, Grand Projet Inutile, which was a big airport near Nantes, not far from the Atlantic Sea in, in France. And they invested that place after a big uh, international camp in 2007 or 2008, or there was two gatherings anyway. Some people squatted and stayed there. It took 10 years, but in 2018, the government finally stopped that project. Now, some people who fought and squatted the places developed uh, forms of taking care of the land And it was one of the arguments also in protecting the land against the airport. There was a specific triton and salamandre, which are small reptiles, species which were associated to this landscape that is a hedge grow. So really the result of a lot of transformation of the land. But the kind of wildlife that is there has spread thanks to the care that the inhabitants, the squatters, did of that land which is about 1,600 hectares. And so now that the project is not happening, many inhabitants of the previous struggle and new ones are still there and develop new forms of looking after the land and continue the struggle to be able to inhabit, as they say, hmm. we are the nature that defends itself. Ah, that gives us the, you know, the direction to go. Um, Let's say. Maybe before we get to the more political questions, some more questions also to your work to better understand um, what you do. And to start with, I'd like to come back to imaging technologies and how would you relate your ways of representation, be it like as a visual artist, so through audiovisual means, but also through linguistic means as a writing anthropologist, but also you, Barbara, came to anthropology through cinema, as we've heard in the beginning. So how would you relate these kind of Western imaging technologies to the ones you find, for example, in Australia? And um, also, Barbara, you've edited a book, if I got that right, with indigenous artists from Australia. So there's a big discussion, of course, after the last documental, which Angela knows very well, about how to exhibit, how to analyze, how to read this work. Um, in a Western context. So maybe you could both say some words about these relations uh, between technologies. Yeah, Max, it's not a book. Ah. It's a CD-ROM. Okay. Yes, with 50 artists from the Wanayaka Art Cooperative in Lajamanu, Northern Territory. So they are Warbury artists who started to paint in uh, mid-80s. They had received land back by winning the land claim in uh, 78, but there were other issues, right, going on. And during that trip in Paris, there was the first exhibition at the Australian Embassy of the beginning of the movement of dot paintings that started in Papania, who are traditional allies, ritual allies with the Warby people. There is even some Warby who live in Papania. 
When they saw those paintings that they had not seen before, they were very shocked because they share the same song lines. And as desert people, they have the same way, not of representing. I never use the word representation, of expressing the agency of their ancestors and of the land. Where any form of life, which is sitting, is half a circle. Any form of life that is straight, like a person who is lying down, or an animal who is lying down, is a line. And any places are circles, and anything that leaves an imprint, which is like a circle, like a round fruit, is a circle. So then you have multiple combinations of lines, straight lines, meandering lines, like for creeks or snakes or clouds, and circles for places and round objects, and half circles for any living being, not just humans, right? So imagine you want to have a group of people sitting around a fire. It will be several half circles around a circle. Some people say, oh, it looks like a flower. No, it's not the flower. It's the imprint of living beings around the fire or around the place. Now, what was called the dot painting movement, the dots for the Wobi and the people in Papania are the Kuruwari. The Kuruwari I translated by force image. It's a word that can be used to any image, but for them, Kuruwari is a force image. And it's because images have that force for them that a place which is a Kuruwari as an imprint or metamorphosis of the heroes, Hebrew heroes who are talking, is a false image. Looking at the place is looking at a false image. Painting those places as a cartography of lines that connect places with imprints of the different agents is a false image. Telling the story that in anthropology is called a myth is a kuruari, a false image. Singing a song line is a kuruari, a false image. So image, that word, brings together the visual and the audio. And the kuruari can be danced, but most importantly, it is the land in its specific toponyms, in its specific features. And so this is what I have translated from a Wobi word, palkachari, becoming body, And when somebody say palkachari in relation to its jukurpa, the dreaming, they become the land. And I'm calling for finding back for us that extraordinary power, empowerment, collective and mental in the sense of guatari, which is not just individual, but traversed with everything, not just other humans and society, but the environment as milieu to find, again, that empowerment to become the land we live in. Yeah, very good. You want to add something, Angela? Well, yeah, I, I think the image-making that I'm concerned with, and this is not just image-making, but it is also memory-making, if you want. And memory, as I was referring to in the Bergsonian sense, is a false image. It is not 
an image that represents something's fixed and stable with a, with a system of references in order to analyze and understand what is that, what we look at as a subject looks at an image, but it is a false image. It is sending you somewhere else. And this has been very important because I'm coming from a practice that uses recorders, let's say, within a practice that is also concerned by migration, by changing places, by kind of making up where you have been, by the question, what has happened, by many of these type of themes in my work. So that's why I'm kind of using multi-screen works, because I'm not just wanting to have my own actual interpretation of something on one screen in one montage. I have multiple montages that are superimposed to each other in order that one thing can speak to another within another extension in a certain sense. So this extension is very important. It is, of course, immediately sound and image. But uh, what is more and maybe interesting for a future practice in that is uh, kind of forums or locations or uh, that are allowing that this type of work is actualized within a group. And this is actually not the case uh, because we have institutionalized actualizations, if you want, even though they are very important. But still, what is a problem in there is that the reference frame of what we see stays, you know, it's a very slow change in a certain sense. It doesn't really adapt to all what is embedded within the forces that are in there in a certain sense. So uh, that would call for something that is to some degree amazingly operative in these art centers in the Northern Territories. You know, they're very different centers and very different practices. And there are some of them who are really producing for the art market on a you know, scale that is not imaginable. They produce hundreds of paintings per year, make millions of dollars uh, by selling these uh, paintings in the internet and so on. But there are also others who are, you know, something which reminded me a lot uh, to the practice in Laborde with Guattari, some sort of multivalence of uh, location that you have a social world, a world of expressions, a process-based world, something that is kind of, you know, allowing to renew and actualize what we are doing. Now, I think it's still a question with the sand paintings and, you know, the thing that they are actually making disappear again. Uh, so they didn't want to do it on canvas because then canvas become an object that is traveling somewhere else where there is no more relation to the one who is doing the painting. So some sort of a loss of a social group within that process of the art uh, traveling somewhere. But from my own practice, the cinesomatic cartographies that I'm using as a term, meaning movement, body, kine, soma, and the cartography that is associated with, comes from this practice that is perhaps not completely central in uh, the contemporary art making, but which is very, very everyday type of practice of uh, picturing some place around you that is especially important for people who are on the move, who are, you know, moving from one place to the other. And these knowledges, I think, have to become more important because it's not just a practice that wants to melancholically 
you know, uh, make a connection point to a place you have been and that's it and no more activity around that. It is also knowledges that are developing in time. And that's why I think that migration is such an important uh, layer in there because it involves these movements. But of course, uh, to come to a point where we actually understand exactly how this can become, uh, you know, an image force in a actualizing practice within our society, there is still a long way to go in a certain sense. Uh, I would like just to shortly comment on that is that uh, in those incredible discussions that you were referring to, Angela, about the impact and the dangers of the acrylic movement and the traveling of canvases, there was a very interesting response, which was that the power image traveling carries the agency of what is painted, which is the agency of the land. And so the success of those paintings worldwide, from the point of view of the painters, mostly women paint, right? This is very important. The political effect is that Australia recognized those painters partly because they were so successful worldwide. So from that point of view, many indigenous people who paint, the Warbury say that, but also others, they say that their paintings are traveling as agents and so that the song line is traveling overseas So it's like the line from Australia, if it's an emu painting or a kangaroo painting, the line continues to Europe. So it's creating that connection. So I would like to come back to this initial question of how do we look at the land, because this is related of how do we understand and live in it. And for me, it would be really interesting to know what you think is actually something that we can learn for today's movements in climate justice from these cosmologies, and then also connected to that, the question of international alliances in these movements that are at the moment more and more also uh, led by indigenous activists. Yes, okay, so... In Australia, like in other places, the, there is the X-Rebellion movement, which supports climate justice, but there are indigenous groups, especially the youth, which is very well organized. The same in French Guiana. And it's been uh, since the 70s that different indigenous activists meet across the world. They ask for the platform of the United Nations to be able to meet twice a year in Geneva and New York. This has created a lot of links all across the Pacific. There is the Festival of Pacific Arts every four years, which is both cultural and very political. So the history is, is huge of those indigenous exchanges and of, for activism. Now, it is true that over the last few years, there has been a rediscovery of the young generation of activists who are not indigenous and who are fascinated by the struggles of indigenous people because the struggles today against especially extractivism and big projects, which are led by the same mining big companies all across the world. This is where there are junctions and support But uh, I would not formulate the alliances in terms of 
what do we have to learn from indigenous people? An alliance means to work together. And each struggle is related to a specific place. But of course, if a mining company like happens today wants to develop a huge industrial gold mining in the French Guiana, and the same companies in Central Australia extracting gold for many, many years, there is a point. There is the strategy of uh, which is defended by a lot of Native Americans after the Standing Rock movement against a pipeline, which is to call for disinvestment of big projects of that kind in banks. This concerns us all because we all have money in banks and banks fund projects all across the world away from our own countries here in the West and we are responsible. So this is one tool. Angela, what do you think as someone who is at the moment actually researching on these things? What is that that for you is an actualization, could be an actualization? Okay, there are two points. One is uh, if there is a drought, a climate drought that, uh, for example, is going to be investigated in terms of financial help that comes, for example, from the European Union in Europe or from other areas of institutional organization to the world. The kind of way we can see what is happening where by some specialists and experts in these institutions and how that is actually good or not good has already a history today, as we see, for example, in Greece when we see the European Union and how they transformed the agricultural sector and creating huge disasters because they were not aware about specific environmental conditions. And they were making the people change, invest in machinery that then became somehow obsolete in a certain sense. So it was the end of that type of agriculture there. And this type of top-down knowledge, uh, you know, uh, stratification is for me a central problem. In that sense, I would argue that we have to, uh, you know, uh, not only regionalize the knowledge, and I'm talking also about the knowledge of anthropology and science and universities, not just uh, the knowledge of financial investment, but all these groups have to get another directional. There must be another type of feedback or the decision-making has to become more autonomous. And this is really difficult. And this is as difficult as to imagine how much it takes for some sort of a Western subject to travel within an area and to imagine what, for example, land landscape and how you see and what you see is because you need a lot of time to understand what you see and how limited it is what you can understand in a certain sense. So this is very central within this relation. But this is true for Lower Austria as much as for other areas. You know, they have a drought. The farmers are concerned. They want to change. They start to plant trees to make forests there. They are, you know, industrial farmers. They understand the limit of their own operation in a certain sense. But they are having a hard time to get the means that they need in order to operate this. And it's very specific. It depends on a specific geological climate condition, the wind, the temperature, the way of water, how it was used, the errors of the past of canalization of water and so on and so on. 
So uh, that means a complete molecularization in a certain sense that has all, not to forget the macro dimensions of it, but it means that uh, all means and there is technological means involved in that must take part in this enterprise in a certain sense. We can, through technology, review what we are supposed to think that we see. That is one of the points uh, why I started this practice, to review what was given to me, what I see, and understand that that's not the case. Something else is happening. It's not what I had learned. It is uh, something else that I can actually analyze, see through these type of agencies with technologies in a certain sense. I would like to add something. Uh, Google had a lot of programs to uh, propose to indigenous group to do mapping of their land. And this was a way to uh, provide them with computers, electricity, networks. And many groups today in struggles do use a lot of telephones, exchange through social networks. This is how it has accelerated the exchanges and support uh, across different indigenous groups on the planet. But this is a very tricky one from the technological point of view because the mapping of uh, the forest of other regions that indigenous people know well in the 90s, when I was doing the CD-ROM, the war we were against any public mapping. So we did a sort of um, device, a topological device to show how places are related, but it was not a map in the Western sense to find what is where. Now, with current GPS satellites and so on, and those programs have also grown at national levels, there is a lot of money into mapping and some groups start to be to not to want to map because if they don't know what it is for. And we all have that issue. We have that issue with resistant movements. How, how do we advertise things? Because everything that goes through social networks, and especially since the pandemic and the isolation and so on, there is a massive amount of data that is given to all the powers. So that's a big issue. And just to finish, I would like to go back to this idea of alliances with indigenous people and what we learn. I don't think we should say we learn from, but we learn with indigenous people. That means that they desperately are asking for alliances because in every state and across the world, they are a minority. In Australia, indigenous people are 3% of the population. Native Americans, French Guiana are only 3% also. All across the world, all the indigenous groups represent 6% of the population. But the things that they fight for, not all of them, some of them also go along other values, which are the Western values or Chinese values or whatever, but capitalistic and neoliberal values. But those who struggle do need alliances with others and maybe... You know that the Zapatists from Mexico are planning to come as a huge delegation next summer across Europe. It was wonderful to have the pleasure to listen to two thinkers as you are. <laughs> I think I am approaching not only an understanding, if you want, an affect of how I uh, could relate to the land as an agent And I think, yes, what Barbara just said, that it's about to learn with and in alliance with in order to build new infrastructures of knowledge that is not only reduced to the experts, as Angela said. 
And maybe we did something in this direction with this discussion today. Um, Max, would you... Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to listen. It was a pleasure to have worked with you. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you, Angela, Max, and Margarita. Very grateful for this experience. Thank you so much. Journey Futures. Futures.